Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Residents living in the Seattle area have been warned to avoid all over-the-counter drugs in capsule form following yet another case of cyanide tampering. Chemists from the FBI's forensic lab had carefully analyzed the cyanide capsules and had made an interesting discovery. We got a call from our laboratory asking us, hey, uh, there's some kind of green particles, little specks that are, that are in these capsules, you know, with the cyanide. The specks turned out to be small particles of a product known as algae destroyer, which was used to kill algae in fish tanks. An FBI agent remembered that when he went to Stella's house to interview her, he noticed a large fish tank in her living room. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. Last week, I delved into the case of the Chicago Tylenol murders from 1982 and how that event changed everything when it came to how we purchase over-the-counter medication and to, well, how medication is packaged. I mentioned one particular copycat case that occurred a few years after the Chicago murders, and I would like to use this week's episode to go a bit deeper into the killer, Stella Nichol, and her convoluted plan that led to the deaths of two individuals. According to the United Press, Stella Nichol was accused of killing her husband and a second victim with cyanide-laced extra strength Excedrin in June of 1986. Now, she called attention to her husband's murder after he had been buried without any suspicion of foul play. The U.S. Attorney's Office refused to discuss a motive in the case, but Nickel filed a wrongful death suit against Bristol Myers Company, the maker of Excedrin, and reportedly had three, yes, three, life insurance policies on her late husband. So, Nickel 44 was charged on that Wednesday, from when this UPI report came out, with causing the deaths of her husband and Sue Snow, 40, of Auburn, Washington, who was a bank manager, by means of tampering with Excedrin in a case that panicked the Seattle area and led to a nationwide recall 
and tougher packaging requirements, again, tougher packaging requirements, for non-prescription drugs. She was also charged with putting poisoned Excedrin on grocery store and drugstore shelves. Asked about a motive in the case, Assistant USA, a U.S. Attorney Joanne Maida said, quote, no comment. We've taken an official position on that. Nickel will plead innocent when she is arraigned at a date yet to be determined, federal public defender John Joanne Oliver said. Now, John Oliver defending her would be pretty hysterical. Now, William Danas, an attorney who represented Nickel in civil matters, called the charges asinine. Quote, it boggles the mind to conceive that Stella would put those capsules together and putting them back on the shelves. The attorney said FBI agents have been re-questioning some of her friends about how she got along with her husband. He would also go on to say that he had few contacts with Bruce Nickel, but the couple appeared to have a, quote, normal marriage, as they always say they do. Auburn Police Chief Jake Evans, whose department assisted FBI agents in arresting Nickel at her home, told reporters that he feared any comment about a motive might generate prejudicial news coverage that could prompt the defense to seek a change of venue for the trial. Evans said there was no break in the 18-month investigation that led to the arrest of Nickel, who had been mentioned as a possible suspect several months ago. Quote, I would say this case was made on good, hard-nosed police work, just checking leads over and over and over again, Evans said. So, who is Bruce Nickel? Well, Bruce Nickel died on June 5th, 1986. This was six days before snow. But his death was attributed to natural causes, and this was probably emphysema. After snow's death, Snow's death was blamed on poisoned Excedrin. Stella Nickel called the authorities and said that her husband suffered symptoms similar to Snow's and even handed over two bottles of Excedrin capsules from her family medicine cabinet. Now, shockingly, tests on Bruce Nickel found the presence of cyanide. Stella Nickel would later file a wrongful death lawsuit against Bristol Myers, seeking unspecified damages. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer reported that she had three life, insurances, life insurance policies, as I mentioned before, and that she tried to collect $20,000 from the companies, but was told that she would not be paid pending the investigation of her husband's death. The indictment said Nickel, quote, did tamper with a consumer product, affecting interstate commerce, resulting in the two deaths. In 1985, Stella took out a life insurance policy on Bruce that included a eh, pretty decent payment for an accidental death. Just so happened it was a year later that Stella put cyanide in an Excedrin capsule that Bruce would later take for a headache. Of course, he would die in the hospital a few days later, but they blamed that on emphysema. Now, Stella stood to lose $100,000 if his death wasn't ruled an accident. And so, she decided to alter her plan. And this is where you have to go and see how insane somebody can be when they're in the throes of, I don't know, uh, insanity. Because what she did is she ended up 
tampering with five additional bottles of Excedrin. She would go and place them on store shelves in the Seattle area. And it was six days later that Susan Snow, as I mentioned, took one of those capsules and then died instantly. And after her death was reported in the news, guess what Stella did? She called the police and said, well, I think my husband might have been poisoned. Well, when investigators came to her home to get the bottles, she told them there they were two different bottles that were purchased from two different stores at different times. Now, things get a little weird here because it turned out the contaminated capsules were in those bottles, and this made people a little suspicious. FBI detectives knew that it was unlikely that a coincidence occurred here, and still, they really didn't have any hard evidence against her, and that was until January 1988, and that was when her, her daughter, yes, her daughter, Cynthia Hamilton, would come forward. And this was possibly in order to obtain the reward money. And this is, of course, according to um, the reports that I read and the article from uh, the, the Examiner. And again, she told authorities that her mother had done extensive research at the library. And this is when detectives investigated that claim and discovered that Stella had borrowed, but never returned, a book called Human Poisoning. Her fingerprints were also found all over other books on cyanide. Stella Nichol, again, like I mentioned before, was convicted on two counts of murder by a Seattle, Washington jury. Now, she was the first person to be found guilty of violating the Federal Anti-Tampering Act. And that, again, was for putting the cyanide in the Excedrin capsules. And Stella and Bruce, they married in 1976. And according to Cynthia, who is Stella's daughter, she had been pretty much planning the murder since the honeymoon. And apparently the Chicago incident had a lasting impact on Stella, who thought that cyanide would be a great method to commit murder. And just to give you an idea of, I mean how scary things could be the Chicago murders are still unsolved and that's just straight up terrifying when you think about it somebody or some people I mean if you're one of those investigators in Chicago and you see a case like this and you see what lengths someone will go to kill somebody you have to wonder if there was some similar intent in the Chicago incident you know maybe it was like the Washington you know the DC sniper who decided to go on a completely insane rage killing to finally at some point kill his wife and then make it look like it was a random thing and, yeah, well, he's been put to death, so we don't have to worry about that guy anymore. But nonetheless, it does make you think about how far people will go to get what they want. And pretty much everybody that stands in their way is really, they're just collateral damage. So, the story goes that it was 
June 5th, and it was 1986, and 5.02 p.m., and Stella Nichol called an emergency volunteer fire department on the Kent Black Diamond Road. Her husband, heavy equipment operator Bruce Nichol, 52, was in distress in their single-wide trailer home just off Lake Moneysmith Road in the town of Auburn. When emergency personnel arrived, she told them that Bruce had taken Excedrin capsules and fallen unconscious. She showed them the bottle. Bruce Nichol was rushed by helicopter to Harborview Hospital in Seattle, where he soon died. After an autopsy, the cause of death was declared to be emphysema. Now, in Murderpedia, the, they have an article from Reader's Digest that was published on February, in February of 1991. And I'm going to read from this for a few moments. And it was just after 6 a.m. on June 11, 1986, when Sue Snow, a 40-year-old bank manager in the Seattle suburb of Auburn, pulled herself out of bed. She went to the kitchen and took two extra-strength Excedrin capsules to help fight a throbbing headache. Then, after greeting her daughter Haley, she went into the bathroom and plugged in her curling iron. At 6.40, Haley, 15, noticed her mother was taking a long time. Mom, she called out. There was no answer, only the sound of running water. Entering the bathroom, she found her mother sprawled unconscious on the floor. Her fingers splayed across her chest. Her breathing labored. Rushed to a hospital, Sue Snow died hours later without regaining consciousness. Doctors suspected an aneurysm in the brain, but found no evidence of internal bleeding. The symptoms also suggested an overdose, but Haley insisted her mother didn't drink or smoke, much less take drugs. Since the cause of death could not be deter determined, an autopsy was ordered. During the examination, one of the pathologist's assistants detected a faint odor of bitter almonds emanating from the body, which, if you listen to last week's episode or know anything about cyanide, that's the telltale sign. And so the question became, could snow have been poisoned? Well, lab tests came back positive. Police questioned the family. Would snow have tried to actually poison herself? Certainly not, they said. But thinking back to the horrible morning, they wondered, could the capsules have been tainted? Well, another lab test confirmed it. The capsules contained cyanide. When ingested, cyanide prevents cells from using oxygen. And according to this article, it looks like table salt and a small dose can kill rapidly. It's the perfect poison for murderers. On June 16th, the Food and Drug Administration published the lot number of the tainted capsules. The manufacturer, Bristol Myers, cabled stores across the country to take the capsules off their shelves. Meanwhile, police found two other bottles of contaminated painkillers in Auburn and in Kent, a Seattle suburb adjoining Auburn. Hysteria spread through Washington, as it would, and police stripped all non-prescription capsules from pharmacy shelves. The King County Medical Examiner's Office began checking recent unexplained deaths to see if any were cyanide-caused, and a state of emergency was declared in the county. The investigation was turned over to the FBI. Product tampering had been made a federal crime after the Chicago Tylenol murders in 1982. Sixty agents were assigned to the Snow case. One of those agents, who 
would go on to play a major role in the case was Jack Cusack. At 43, he was, quote, the street-smart, prematurely gray 16-year veteran, and he knew how to read a killer's mind. His offhanded charm and casual style lured suspects and witnesses into giving him crucial information. At first, Cusack thought the killer might be a political terrorist or a disgruntled co-worker, but no one called to take credit or make demands. Then, on June 17th, a 42-year-old woman named Stella Nichol telephoned the police. She reported that 12 days earlier, her husband, Bruce, 52, had died suddenly after taking extra-strength Excedrin capsules. Bruce Nichol had already been buried, and his autopsy reported the cause of death as emphysema, as I've said for the fifth time. However, because he had volunteered to be an organ donor, a sample of his blood serum had been preserved. A test of that serum on June 19th showed cyanide being present. By that time, the police had discovered two bottles of contaminated capsules in the nickel home. So, to an increasingly jittery public, it now looked as if a random killer was loose. A policeman in Auburn voiced the dread that many felt, quote, we've got a maniac out there, unquote. Cusack searched for some connection between Bruce Nickel, a heavy equipment operator for the state, and banker Sue Snow, but none became apparent. Then an alert young chemist at the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C., discovered something peculiar about the cyanide in the five contaminated bottles. Each contained tiny crystal-like specks of green. Now, they do an episode of Forensic Files on this particular case, and you can see what they're talking about. I'm sure you can find that on one of your streaming services. So, breaking the particles down chemically, they were able to identify the substance as an algae killer that was used in home fish tanks. And he actually came up with a brand name, Algae Destroyer. Someone must have mixed the cyanide in a container used earlier for crushing algicide pellets. Daily, the file on the killer grew thicker. An agent was needed who could just cut through the ponderous material. Of course, this is Reader's Digest, so just bear with the, the wording here. Ron Nichols, an Annapolis-educated detective with a head for details, was chosen. As Nichols read through the file, one thing kept bothering him. The FDA had examined over 740,000 over-the-counter capsules in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. Only the capsules in five bottles had turned out to be laced with cyanide. And two of those were found in the nickel home. So if Stella had bought the two bottles at the same time, it would seem a simple case of bad luck. The problem was that Stella had said that she bought them at different times from different stores. The odds that it was a coincidence were infinites oh gosh, I don't even know what that word is. I'm like totally butcher it. So we'll just say that the coincidence was way too strong to be a coincidence. <laughs> I know that sounded terrible, but whatever. Stella Nichols seemed an unlikely suspect. She was a grandmother and she had two daughters and worked as a security guard at the Seattle Tacoma Airport. And, of course, to all appearances, she and Bruce had been happy together. They lived in a trailer on a large, woody lot. Neighbors described her as cheerful and hardworking. She seemed genuinely shocked and despondent when Bruce died. Then, one of the agents remembered something seemingly insignificant from her investigation. 
Quote, Stella Nickel has a fish tank in her trailer, the agent told Cusack, who by now had become the case supervisor. Agents canvassed pet stores, asking if anyone recalled selling algae destroyer to Nickel. On August 25th, they hit pay dirt. A clerk at a store in Kent identified Stella from a photo montage. He remembered her because she had a little bell attached to her purse. He called her the woman who jingled. Now, Clark's recollection, though tantalizing, was neither enough to support an indictment nor enough to convince Cusack this grandmother was a killer. Reader's Digest goes on to say that gradually another side of Stella Nickel began to emerge. An FBI background check turned up convictions in California for check fraud, forgery, and child abuse between 1968 and 1971. The Nichols were chronically short of money. They barely survived a brush with bankruptcy. And before Bruce died, the bank was moving to foreclose on their trailer. By late summer, the agents began digging into the Nichols' life insurance records, and Bruce's policy from the state paid Stella $31,000. But if it was accidental, she would collect an extra $105,000. Further, Stella had taken out two additional $20,000 policies on his life in the year before he died. So, in all, she stood to receive $176,000 if Bruce died from an accidental whatever. But the doctor who examined the body had failed to detect the cyanide. So this is when Stella was curious and she called the doctor several times to question his findings that her husband had died of emphysema. And this is when, according to Reader's Digest, a chilling thought crept into Cusack's mind. He tried to dismiss it. He persisted. It persisted, though. There was the appalling possibility that Sue Snow was murdered, and many others could well have been, so Stella could make her husband's death look like an accident. On November 18th, Cusack and Nichols met Stella Nichols for the first time in an interview at FBI headquarters in Seattle. Cusack watched as a dark-haired middle-aged woman in a buckskin coat come in. As she sat down, a bell in her purse jingled lightly. Cusack wanted Stella to believe this was a routine interview, so he tossed out questions to flow in an easy conversation. He went over the details of her husband's death, where and when she had bought the tainted bottles. Had she ever bought Algae Destroyer? She said no. Had she ever bought extra insurance on her husband? Again, she said no. Now, that lie was something that nudged Stella one rung higher as a suspect. Finally, Cusack asked if she would take a polygraph test. Now she refused, sobbing that she couldn't go through any more questions. For several days, Cusack bided his time, hoping her doubts would wear her down. It was, he explained, his pebbles-on-the-roof technique. Quote, the suspect gets the impression we're interviewing everyone they know. They begin to think we know about every mistake they make. It's like they almost sit awake at night and there's like this ping, ping, ping on the roof, unquote. Four days later, Stella called him and agreed to take the test. During the subsequent polygraph, Cusack and Nichols watched Stella closely. Now, when Cusack asked if she put cyanide in the excedrin capsules, she calmly denied it, but 
there was a jump in her pulse rate and breathing convinced the agents otherwise. Of course, believing she did it and proving it were two different things, and the agents knew that the polygraph data, well, that's not admissible in court. So they needed to corner the quarry and pressure her into a confession. Cusack switched off the machine and said, Stella, listen to me. Based on your physiological responses, I am positive you caused Bruce's death. Stella went white. She then looked coldly at Cusack and said, I want to see my attorney. And on that note, let's hear from this week's sponsor. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We all know relationships take work especially the most important one in your life. And, well, that's the relationship with yourself. And a lot of us will go out of our way or drop anything to help someone that we care about. And we'll treat other people really well. But how often do we give ourselves that same treatment? I know that I personally go out of my way to take time each day to focus on myself because, well, it's an essential part of my routine. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure that you show up for yourself. Listeners of this show know I'm a huge proponent of mental health, and I have personally been in therapy since I was a kid. So, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you could be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com who. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash who. All right, we are back. So the pathologist working on the autopsy of Sue Snow recognized the smell of almond, bitter almonds. And this is when the FDA announced that the extra-strength Excedrin capsule found at Snow's home contained cyanide. So they informed the FBI who took jurisdiction over the case. Now, because of the product tampering legislation passed in response to the Chicago killings, these murders became a federal case, hence why the FBI can get involved. So manufacturer Bristol-Myers initiated a nationwide recall of all extra-strength Excedrin capsules and immediately stopped making the product. A consortium of drug companies alarmed about product tampering posted a $300,000 reward. Bristol-Myers and the industry were following in the footsteps of Johnson & Johnson, 
who I spoke about last week, whose swift reaction to the 1982 Tylenol case has been held up as a model of corporate responsibility and good public relations. Johnson & Johnson warned the public not to buy its product, stop making it, and advertising it, and recalled more than 30 million bottles worth an estimated $100 million. They also posted a $100,000 reward. Again, like I mentioned before, that case still remains unsolved, and that reward is still available. So if you guys know anything about the case from 1982, got six figures looking to get you hooked up with. So anyway, they did a sweep of the grocery and pharmacy shelves in King County, and they did find, as I mentioned before, another tainted bottle. So... You know, this is when the smart Stella had notified the police about, you know, uh, her husband had similar, uh, he had the, she had the same lot number as the same bottle as Sue Snow. So police arrived, Stella handed over the two bottles of Excedrin. Again, both were found to have cyanide, as I mentioned before. And again, this is when the revised cause of death made a big difference to Stella Nichol because under her husband's insurance policy, as I mentioned before, she would now stand to receive an extra $100,000. So on June 24th, a fifth bottle of cyanide-laced pills appeared on retail shelves in South King County. This time it was a bottle of maximum strength Anison 3 at the pay-and-save store where Sue Snow was thought to have bought her fatal Excedrin. So a total of five bottles containing cyanide-laced capsules were recovered. The bottle Sue Snow had purchased, the two bottles Stella's Nickel had purchased and turned in, the Excedrin found on the shelves at Johnny's Market in Kent, and the Anison capsules discovered at the pay-and-save in Auburn. In all the tainted capsules, the cyanide was flecked, like I mentioned before, with those green crystals. And again, this is when the plan becomes apparent. Investigators found it a little remarkable that only five tainted bottles out of the 15,000 that had been screened, Stella would have two of them. Quite a coincidence. Hey, let's just say, it. law enforcement, they don't believe in coincidence. So, there you go. And they also recalled that Stella Nickel had several fish tanks in her trailer home. Now, investigators speculated that she may have used the same container that, to crush the algae killer and store the cyanide. Now, she did have two more insurance policies. Remember, she had a total of three that came to light, and the payoff totaled an estimated $175,000. Now, FBI document examiners did determine that Bruce's signature on the applications had been forged. Suspicious investigators noting that $100,000 of that would only be paid out because the cause of death was now known to be cyanide. So now wondered, people wondered if Stella had randomly killed Sue Snow by planting the bottle that killed her at the pay-and-save. Simply to bring attention to the fact that Bruce had been poisoned and increase her take. Ugh, this woman is just a she-devil. It's just insane. And again, it was around this time that Stella failed the polygraph, and this is also the time that her daughter from the previous marriage, Cindy Hamilton, would come forward. 
Cindy said that her mother had talked about killing Bruce Nickel at one point discussing hiring a hitman. Cindy told the FBI that her mother had wanted to kill recovering alcoholic Bruce because after he had gone through rehab, he had become boring. So Stella was a kind of a party girl. And when Bruce got sober, he kind of just stayed home and watched TV. Now, according to Cindy, Stella had pointed out that if Bruce died, she and Cindy would have the cash they wanted to open a tropical fish store. Oh, so 80s. Or perhaps a ceramic store. That was another one of Stella's hobbies. Now, Cindy told FBI investigators that Stella had researched toxic local plants and other poisons at the library. Okay, so this is another moment we must acknowledge the stupidity of this plan. So the Auburn Public Library, responding to an FBI subpoena, revealed that Stella had checked out titles such as Deadly Harvest and Human Poisoning from Native Plants, several, quote, C volumes from encyclopedias at the library were sent to the FBI lab where technicians determined that Stella had left finger and palm prints on entries about cyanide in three encyclopedias. Stella was indicted in federal court and Cindy testified against her at the trial. Now, this is semi-controversial, but I guess it is what it is. Cindy subsequently did receive $250,000 of the $300,000 reward. This has led some to speculate that she may have initially conspired with her mother against her stepfather, then testified against her mother for the reward after her mother failed an FBI polygraph. I mean, that sounds like a really good movie, but that would be a lot of pieces of a puzzle to come together, and you really wouldn't have a lot of control over it. So, again, great movie idea. Most likely not what happened. Stella Nickel was found guilty in federal court, not of murder, but of product tampering on May 9th, 1988, and was sentenced to 90 years. The Chicago Tylenol case had resulted not only in the 1983 federal anti-tampering law under which she was charged, but FDA requirements that products be packaged with tamper-resistant technology such as blister packs, bottle mouth seal covers, shrink wrap bottle covers, visible seals that must be broken to open the bottle and taped box ends. She maintains her innocence, claiming her daughter lied for the reward money. Now, this article was written before she would have been eligible for parole in 2017. Now, she would be 73, or would have been 73 if she was paroled in, in 2017. She was not. And so Cusack realized that if he was going to crack this case, it was going to be without Stella's confession. And he had began phoning witnesses again and asking if there was anything more that they could add. And again, this was six, le- six weeks later, friends of Cindy Hamilton, Stella's 27-year-old daughter, called Cusack, and this is where it's kind of interesting. Cindy had defended her mother when Cusack had questioned her months earlier, but now that she knew that the polygraph had been failed, she was beginning to have second thoughts. So when Cusack questioned her this time, she told a different tale. Her mother, she said, had talked about the killing of her stepfather for years. Stella was bored, but 
didn't want a divorce because she'd lose half the property. Stella, as I mentioned before, had talked about hiring a hitman to shoot Bruce or run his car off the road. Once she tried to poison him with seeds, only to make him drowsy. Now, her mother, when her mother told her about Bruce's death, Cindy said that Stella looked hard at her and said, I know what you're thinking, and the answer is no. So Cindy pretty much kept her thoughts to herself and didn't really go past that, you know, belief that she could actually have killed her uh, stepfather. So Cindy was uh, very open with the police. She talked to them for nine straight hours, and uh, the police were, needless to say, very excited, but... Cindy had not seen her mom place any of the cyanide in the capsules, so there really wasn't anything to say, you know, this is the smoking gun. Now, she did agree to testify. That's a big thing. And one of the things that haunted Cusack was that Cindy said that, quote, I knew my mother was capable of doing this. I just didn't want to believe it. So this is also when he realized how many more people Stella would have killed just to make his husband's death look like an accident. I mean, there's, it's really spooky and creepy to think of how big this could have been if those bottles would have not been um, found when they were found. I mean, it's just amazing. So by February of 1987, the grand jury was now hearing testimony and the FBI team had shrunk to Cusack, the interviewer, Nichols' analyzer, and an energetic rookie named Marshall Stone. And, again, they did all these different things, and really what the FBI did is when they figured out the whole research at the library and they got the books to the lab, and, I mean, the lab uncovered <laughs> 84 fingerprints of Stella's and uh, yeah guess what pages they were on yeah they were on the pages that were discussing cyanide so you know as I mentioned before the trial goes on and as a result of the case the FBI tightens its regulations again requiring more anti-tampering protection for over-the-counter medications Bristol Myers, the maker of Excedrin, joined the manufacturers of Tylenol and other drugs in abandoning the two-piece non-prescription capsules, replacing them with one-piece caplets, thus effectively ending the threat of capsule tampering by crazed killers. When Cusack thinks of the case now, he wonders about the what-ifs. For instance, what if the curious FBI chemist hadn't detected the tiny specks of algae? Stella Nickel might have committed the perfect crime, but she didn't. It's the old lesson, says Cusack. Quote, you turn over every stone, leaving nothing to chance. This time it worked. Now, CBS, they would go on to do a few stories on her on 48 Hours. And David Cohn wrote a piece about the Nickel case. And he wrote, in 1988, in Washington State, Stella Nickel was convicted of killing her husband, Bruce, and Sue Snow, a manager, by putting cyanide in Excedrin capsules. He mentions how the crime was similar to the Chicago Tylenol murders four years earlier. Seven people died in that case, which is still unsolved to this day. That case moved Congress to enact tough tampering laws. 
Nickel was the first to be convicted under it. Now, private detective Al Farr and his partner, Paul Cialino, are on a mission to prove what they both firmly believe, that Nickel was innocent. So, what you have here is you have 48 hours, they're doing basically a follow-up story on this case, because this has been, you know, it's a 30-year-old case at that, you know, 20-some-odd-year-old case at that point. So, basically, they're just bringing attention to it, and these two detectives are saying, we've got evidence that, you know, that she was not involved in this, and guess what? The Pretty much... The judges said, kick bricks, guys. She's the killer, and that's that. And uh, Greg Olson wrote a book called Bitter Almonds, and that was definitely a great book and definitely detailed the case. And he talked about why the FBI zeroed in on Stella, and it was... Because Detective Mike Dunbar, who worked on the case, said that she was greedy and wanted insurance money. And Bruce's insurance paid an extra hundred grand if he died by accident. So, again, like we mentioned before, it's um, it's insane to think that this lady would have gone through the trouble to not get divorced, but to put everybody else's lives in danger by literally literally taking the chance of just putting cyanide drugs on shelves i mean so many people kids could have died grandparents could have died mothers fathers you know it's not like she would have taken out the whole city but it could have been bad and let's say somebody else in the family took one of those pills uh you know let's say one of her daughters took one of those pills i don't it's just insane, you know, like to think that this woman was so greedy that she would go to such lengths. This is like being drunk, driving drunk through a crowd in the middle of Mardi Gras. Like just you just you don't do it <laughs> like it's just insane to think that she would go to this length now. Again, we've talked that she would she was possibly going to hire a hitman. She tried to poison him with seeds. She wondered if she could put cocaine in his drinks or heroin. And, you know, it's like, okay, she's f- fishing for all these different ideas and it's just like, oh man, you really are a piece of shit. And I apologize if that's a stretch, but this woman put so many lives in danger just to collect $175,000. I mean, she's a serial killer. Just to murder, just, I mean, it's... Uh, all I can say is thank you for the FBI for doing their research and for the one detective or the one pathologist who was able to smell the almonds the bitter almonds and was able to bring this case to a close because the last thing that any of these drug companies wanted was to have another Tylenol murders case where you had a case where you have no solution and again the city of Chicago is still left reeling and all those families that were destroyed because of some crazed madman 
At least in this particular case in Seattle, we just had a crazed mad woman who was really just pissed off at her husband and wanted him out of the picture. But she was so crazy that she was willing to, once the authorities decided it was not an accidental death, she went out of her way to try to make sure the doctors knew it was a death by accident. And that was, I mean, that is just greed to a a level that I don't think any of you guys could understand. I can't understand it. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people in jail that understand it. Hell, a Tinder swindler probably understands it. But anyway, this was just one of those cases I wanted to go a little bit deeper into because it really was similar to what happened in Chicago. And again, I wonder if this didn't make the investigators in Chicago think about the possibility of there being a similar type of, um, you know, love spat or, uh, I don't know, you name it, just uh, domestic um, unhappiness. Or, I mean, look at the, the lengths she went to, to kill her husband. So let's just say that's a possibility in the Chicago murders. And if that is a possibility, maybe that opens the door for some possible suspects that haven't been looked at before and on that note guys I thank you so much for listening but that will do it for this week's episode of Who Killed and just a reminder for the second year in a row I will be representing Who Killed Who Killed Amy Maholovic and my passion case on podcast podcast row at Vegas CrimeCon 2022 And I will say it's a bucket list item for any true crime fan. Now, the dates are April 29th through May 1st. If you want to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code WHOKILLED. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the other shows that I work on, you can help support independent journalism by clicking on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, and that is slow minus the W. Or if you want to contribute a few bucks via the Venmo app, My username is at bill-huffman-3. I will provide a link in the show notes as well. I've mentioned it before, and I'll say it again. Every contribution helps keep these slow burn podcasts running. Again, you can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your favorite shows. Those five stars help keep the important cases that I cover, such as Amy Maholovic, in the spotlight. I will be dropping new episodes, as always, every Friday. If you want to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Again, I appreciate you guys listening so much. And until next time, be healthy and stay safe. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.